Well, hello there, Richard Tubb here with another episode of Tub Talk, the podcast for IT consultants. Slightly different type of episode this time around. Normally, we would be doing a long-form interview with an expert or an influencer within the MSP, the managed service provider space. But today, I wanted to feature not one, but three interviews, three shorter-form interviews with customer-centric vendors. What do I mean by that? Well, I think most of us are familiar with with those vendors who take a sales-first approach to dealing with managed service providers. There's nothing at all wrong with that approach, but I am seeing a rise in vendors who are doing customer-centric approaches to their relationships with managed service providers. We're featuring three today. We're featuring Andrew Wallace of Smileback, Jason Kemsley of Uptime Solutions, and Tim Swainson of Kemp Technologies. All three of those companies, and they are not alone in this, have shown a remarkable ability over the past 12 months or more to listen to what MSPs are saying and to adjust their service delivery offerings accordingly. We're going to give various examples of that, and I hope that not only do we shine a light on those three vendors who are really breaking the mould with their customer-centric approach, but there's something for you to learn as a managed service provider about how you can listen and adjust your service delivery approach uh, depending on what your client want. So without further ado, here are three customer-centric vendors. Andrew Wallace, Managing Director of Smileback, welcome. Hey, Richard. Hey, we were just, just before we came on air, uh, we were having a conversation um, about uh, customer-centric uh, MSP vendors, and um, specifically, we were talking about a tool that we both use. That something that went a little bit wrong for us uh, uh, this morning, and you gave a great example of you know how uh, machines can often do billing and things like that and get it wrong. So perhaps we can talk a little bit about that, and maybe we can talk a bit about how you avoid doing that within uh, Smileback. Yeah, for sure. So I think it's it's very interesting because the internet, I don't know, revolution, let's call it, has, has brought a real focus on, on the customer and on the user in the technology speak. But I think in a lot of ways, it's starting to even go too far now with the desire for um, companies to be able to automate everything and to anticipate your needs, which is a great uh, practice in spirit, but in, in the actual practice of it, they don't always get it right. And as we were talking about Slack, you know, they manage the billing of the pro or premium or whatever it's called on Slack so carefully and so deliberately um, with, and so proactively that I often find I'm constantly having to reach out to them to tell them to please stop doing that because, well, I appreciate that you're anticipating that um, I have an inactive employee, so I shouldn't be billed for him next month. He's just on vacation and I want him to be able to go on vacation without being deactivated from Slack and having to reactivate his account and without having to look through the numbers uh, every month in terms of billing to see how much are we actually paying. And uh, and so a way that we actually have gone through this at, at Smileback is at first we started down a similar path of trying to anticipate for our customer uh, when their account would change based on their number of agents. And, and of course, we also reduce uh, if they have fewer agents. But what we've landed upon is that you need from, from our point of view to be customer centric. It's up to us to identify 
the trigger, but we always reach out to the customer and we always have a conversation with them. And it's a, it's a policy for us that before we adjust billing, uh, we always try to get confirmation from the customer before we do anything, um, because there's just an element of, of both software that's designed for the user and then also humans that are designed for other humans. And I think that it's, it's really important to figure out when is it a machine conversation and when is it the responsibility of the customer team. Um, and by that, I mean a person to talk to another person. Yeah. And it seems so obvious to me, Andrew, that, you know, um, uh, there's this balance, isn't there, in, especially within the MSP industry between self-service and human interaction. But you don't have to go all the way with one or the other. So I've worked with um, MSP vendors where the uh, the sign-up process and the um, adjustment to billing and all those sort of things is entirely human interaction. And it's incredibly frustrating because you just want to click on a box that says increase the licenses by one or decrease it by one, you know, but the other end of the scale, as we've talked about, and we should be clear here, we both love Slack, don't we? We both use Slack yes. within our team, brilliant product, but they've tried to automate things perhaps too much. So you've struck the balance at Smileback between the automation, the self-service. Uh, you know, it's easy to get up and running uh, with Smileback. It's uh, easy to adjust your licenses and things like that, but there's human element uh, involved in that. And of course, I sh we should say that uh, for anybody who's not familiar with Smileback, perhaps give a potted overview of what the product is and what it does. Yeah, so we're a customer satisfaction platform designed uh, specifically for MSPs and focused exclusively on customer satisfaction as a tool to empower your business. So we think about customer satisfaction all the time because we are both trying to satisfy our customers and then also help our customers satisfy their clients. And so, you know, we're we're a critical piece of the value chain in terms of kind of customer satisfaction. So I would also think if we don't have a good grasp and a good point of view on these topics and these issues, and again, we're not perfect, but we're grappling with it, um, then we would be doing something, something wrong. Um, but so we're always trying to think about and balance what's the right solution and as opposed to having a very extreme or dramatic um, or sexy kind of point of view on what's machine, what's human. We really just take a very pragmatic approach of learning about, you know, when do, when would the user experience be best if it was, inter, if there was a human intervention, when would it be best if there was a machine intervention, and when would it be best if there was both or the option given uh, to the customer? Because I think when you say something like self-service and sign-up process, it's, that's a really interesting one because there's a lot of uh, users, people out there who do want to just be able to self-serve and do it as quickly as possible. But there's others who, even if they can do it um, and do want to do it quickly, they just feel more confidence and they get more knowledge from having someone there who's a human who can just troubleshoot things in real time or work with them or provide not only just here's how you do it, but here's some consultation around why you do it this way. Um, and so in that case, for us at Smileback, we've learned that doing both is best there. And it's really just understanding that you can have many different options and you have to have the discipline to apply them correctly and not try to swing a, a hammer um, for every single solution. 
Yeah. And we talked earlier on about the balance between, you know, making things scalable, make for a, for a vendor. Um, I want to talk specifically about sort of the accessibility of your team. So your team yourself as an MD, you're very accessible. People can reach out to you easily, drop you an email, get in touch on social media. Um, for, for any MSP vendors uh, listening to this, how do you strike the right balance between making yourself accessible to your clients and potential clients and not getting overwhelmed? by, you know, everybody, if there's a problem, somebody picks up the phone to Wallace and says, hey, I want you to sort this out as the managing director as opposed to the team. Yeah, so, and I think that's that's a really tough one. And partly it's it's not even, I can't even say take credit or it's something that Smileback does because we're just not at a level of scale and nor do I think we'll actually ever get to that level of scale where um, I don't know or the people in the company don't know our customers don't know what's going on. Um, I like to say we're not a startup or a small business on the internet. And that is very intentional is to have that small business attitude. Uh, of course we do want to, to grow and, and get to a size where, yeah, um, you know, we have right now about 850 customers. So that's a lot. And they have, you know, X amount of text. but the way that it's, uh, we've, I think positioned it so that, I do, I am very accessible and I do have many conversations with customers, uh, with the market, with whomever, with yourself. Um, but my team is also empowered to make decisions and they know the product. They, they understand our customers. Most of them have now been here for a while. So we're committed to keeping that team so that people like Evan Marks, who's our customer lead, he's also known by the community. People trust him. People see him at IT Nation Evolve. And, and people even ask me when they see me, you know, how's Evan doing? Or how's Rory doing? Or on our sales widget on uh, our marketing website, people ask for Sophia by name. You know, we get messages there just, hi, Sophia. Um, and so, you know, we've built these relationships with our customers and the team is empowered and people feel confident that the people who are working the front line will solve their problem and we don't try to present things as you know you need the managing director to make these decisions you need me to be on the conversation on the call but I'm always there and my team will bring me in when they feel that I can add value like real value to it not just the name uh, or actually my expertise or what I do makes sense for this conversation. I want to touch on uh, your internal culture at Smileback as well. So I've had the pleasure of working with you and getting a, a for the past few months and getting a glimpse into the internal culture at Smileback. And you practice uh, something that you call radical transparency. Uh, so all the conversations tend to be open and honest within the team and with external uh, contractors and with clients. Um, and I think that lends itself really, really well to empowering the team to make decisions without having to go and check with Wallace, without going to check with the, the MD, or oh, what should I do here? Tell me more about that culture and how you've managed to cultivate that sort of culture. Yeah, and I mean, I call it radical transparency because other people call it radical transparency. Um, I find, I generally find hyperbolic terms a little ridiculous, uh, but I did learn it from um, when I was a consultant at a company in Toronto called Simbuildi Intersect. We had a wonderful culture and it was a very open, very transparent, very direct, very, um, I think there was hierarchy, but it was not hierarchical, if that makes sense. Um, and we definitely did focus on empowering the teams, the people closest to the businesses, closest to the technology to make the decisions because they were in the best position to do so because they had the most information. And the thinking was, is that they could come to the seniors, the leads in order to 
sort of bounce ideas or get course corrected, you know, for things that maybe they didn't know they didn't understand, as opposed to us as leads, senior people dictating to them, they would come to us and, you know, they would learn that the more they came to us, the better served their decisions would be. Um, and so, yeah, I've really tried to bring that to smile back because I think it lends to what we were talking about before in terms of empowering and enabling the team to make decisions. And if you do everything, at least from my point of view, openly and transparently, what it does is it mitigates the risk. So the risk of someone who may not might not be as experienced or an expert in the space making a decision is they might make the wrong one. Um, and usually it's okay to make wrong decisions. We make mistakes all the time. Most mistakes are easy to correct. Uh, what we don't want to do is have a catastrophic error happen. And so when everything is transparent, when everything's in the open, then we... Uh, myself or someone else can come in and say, whoa, whoa, whoa this, the, this is, looks like it's going the wrong way. Here's why. Um, and, and so that's important. And the other piece too, is that just to create a culture where uh, there's a separation of kind of decisions are personal or professional um, and that we can very easily and openly criticize a decision or a theory or a proposal where we're not criticizing the person. And so if the criticism is public and the praise is public, then there's an equanimity, I think, to things as opposed to the theory that criticism should be private and uh, praise should be public. Uh, I don't agree with that. I think they should be treated the same because what matters is the outcome and nobody should be rude to another person. No one should feel uh, negative because their idea um, was criticized. I mean, we want to be in a growth mindset where we take criticism as a means to growth. And so that's what we're trying to create. It's hard. Uh, it takes some restraint um, and also some courage just to constantly be putting your ideas out there openly and honestly. Um, but I think it works. And I'll give you an example. You know, we are doing Remote Connect and Sophia had this great idea about leveraging your followers in order to kind of raffle off tickets to Remote Connect. And she said, okay, do you want to go talk to Richard about it? And I said, no, no, it'd be way better if you posted this publicly, you talk to Richard directly because it's your idea. He and Jenks are the experts, so they should speak to you directly as opposed to me middlemanning it. And then anybody who sees it and feels inspired by the idea can contribute to it in Slack. Um, and then we also have all the documentation. So anyone, if you know you you were busy, can come back to it later, quickly read it and say, hey, this is how I think we should go. Yeah. And there's such a lesson in there for managed service providers, because I can tell you as a former MSP myself, trying to get that through to engineers within the business and saying to them, look, we've just got to give, you, you, you've got to be recording your time in tickets, not because we're just cracking the whip, but if you're off sick, if you go home early, if there's an emergency, whatever it is, other members in the team can then grab hold of that conversation with the client and move things forward, that you're working yeah. as a team. So it works so well. Uh, and you're the best example I've seen of a vendor actually taking this concept and, and just sort of taking it to the nth degree. And it just works incredibly well. So uh, uh, kudos for, uh, for that. Yeah. And I think if I can have one on what your example there, the, the underlying principle there, though, has to be that you aren't being punitive around like tracking tickets. You aren't being, you're not surveilling your company. It has to be genuine. Um, and I think that's often where it goes wrong is that you want to have this transparency and, and everything we just described, but you don't genuinely kind of deal with the hard part of that, which is supporting and is um, providing, you know, leadership and comfort and confidence to your team. 
Yeah. Now, you will definitely, Smileback are definitely part of this new breed of customer-centric uh, vendors in the MSP space. So I want to put you on the spot here. There's that old adage, isn't there, that the customer is always right? Yeah. <laughs> I wonder how you feel about that and what the attitude at Smileback is towards perhaps where you've got some conflict with a customer. It could be something small, could be something big. How do you handle that at Smileback? Uh, so I personally don't believe that the customer is always right. Um, I think that evidence... Um, proves that out. I think in terms of remember, if, if what the adage is getting at is that you have to remember that you serve uh, your customers and you serve your clients um, and that the role is always of someone serving another, I think that that helps. And so we, we do as much as we can um, empower the customer, but there are certain features and functionality that we choose not to build, even though they've been requested by the customer base. And we do try to take a consultative approach on certain issues. Um, and so, because we do feel that we have a level of expertise in the space, and obviously we have no business telling a customer what to do, but there are instances where, you know, certain customers do really want certain features and functionality and we do do discovery with them and we do think about it. However, our value proposition is that we have a level of expertise with, with CSAT, MPS, and customer satisfaction and how to leverage it. And so we do make certain decisions where, no, we're not going to build that because ultimately, while I understand why in the short term, um, it seems like a good idea. In the long term, it it's actually um, counterproductive to our value proposition. Um, and in terms of interactions with customers, though, I mean, we do... Um, we do assume that the customer is right. And if you know we find out that we made a mistake, we always try to correct for it. And if we try, if we find out that they were, and it's hard in, in the abstract, but in air, you know, we we just explain our position um, and 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 do our best to try to get nonetheless a uh, a green smiley on on our own survey because we we have to use our own tool. Andrew, this has been fascinating. If anybody wants to continue the conversation with you, what's the, we talked about you being accessible. What's the best way for yeah. to reach out to you? Yeah, they can reach out to me directly at andrew at smileback.com. Uh, or if they want to talk to the team, they can reach out at help or sales. Well, I should say help at smileback.com or sales at smileback.com. Got it. Andrew, thanks for your time today. Thank you, sir. Jason Kemsley of Uptime Solutions. How are you doing? Hello, good afternoon. I'm very well, thank you. Yourself? I'm very well indeed. Now, it was uh, an idea that you gave to me initially. We had a conversation a, a number of months ago, and you were talking about this new breed of customer-centric vendors. Um, and you know, it's almost version 2.0 of the vendor model within the managed service provider industry. Uptime Solutions jumps out at me as, you know, you have taken a, an established model and the outsourced knock, sock, and help desk. Um, I used to use an outsourced knock uh, within my own MSP business. I used to use a company called Zenith Infotech back in the day, and it was great, not without its challenges. But what you've done with Uptime, you've looked at that, you've seen the mistakes that people have made previously and you've improved upon it, sort of iterated on it. Tell us a little bit more about that journey and why you are so very customer focused. Yeah, no, I think you're you're spot on. And I, that obviously led me to the idea um, in the first place. And uh, it goes back to seven, eight years ago when uh, myself and Brad, the MD, were, were sat in his bedroom in the flat and um, 
we're thinking, you know, what what is it that we can do that will really stand out? And the age old entrepreneur thing is to find something and do a bit better. Um, and coming both as techs into this outsourcing world, we we very much realised that it's almost run and, and owned and, and all of those type of things with money first in mind or, or, you know, they're looking at the balance sheets or whatever it might be. And by coming at it from an angle of tech first, customer first, the books will look after themselves in some way. Um, neither of us obviously being finance guys, uh, I was hoping that was the case. It turns out to thankfully be the case. Um, so absolutely, we, we had a look at the market at the time and realized that, you know, there's, there's good Good vendors out there, they're still out there, but at some point there's going to become a need to fix those mistakes that they've been making um, or you know, visually seem to be making um, so that we can capitalize on them and, and create that new breed and, and be the go-to, if you like, for the next five years. Yeah, let's zoom in on some of the uh, the ways that you're differentiating then, some of the ways that you put in the customer first. So there is lots of choices out there for sort of outsource provider, uh, and you're really open and honest about that, which I should say, you, you know, publicly is so refreshing. You don't shy away when you're having conversation with MSPs in the tech tribe, uh, the community we're both a part of, and in other communities. You say, hey, we may not be the best fit for you, which is uh, uh, something that I find really, really refreshing. But the other thing that sort of jumped out uh, uh, that you're doing is to do with your purchasing terms. So rather than try and lock people into long, uh, long-term long contracts, you sort of live and die with the service, don't you? Yeah. So being being a tech um, and when looking at contracts and those, those types of elements, what any MSP that I talk to, and you know, I get to talk to to quite a few every day, and and I love that. Um, I always say to them, the reason I want you to stay is because of the service we're delivering, not because you're contractually bound. Um, because that's no good for you, it's no good for me, it's no good for anyone to be just waiting for that timer to to come to the end. Um, my interpretation of of IT um, back when this all started was. Vendors usually dropped off during the middle of that contract, and then three months before the end, are oh, suddenly they're doing anything and everything to to make sure you want to want to renew. And um, actually, if you just fix a couple of processes and put a couple of things in place, you can decrease the amount you need to do anyway because you're proactively doing it. It's not coming at once. Um, so the thirty day contracts that we offer, um, they're there so that you stay a customer for the right reasons rather than a contractual reason. And and to this day, that has served us very well, and I'm, I'm sure it will continue to do so. Um, it goes without saying, you know, usually someone signs up and then says, that it's been what you said it was going to be. Um, it all sounds a bit too good to be true, some people do say. Um, but once they're three, four months in, usually I just say, look, the 12-month option is there if you'd like it. I can do a little bit of a better price, obviously. Um but you don't have to. There's there's no major uh, reason you need to. Um, but if you can, it means that I can I can commit to you for the next twelve months the same as you committing to me. Quite often, I actually find that they want me to give them a twelve month contract because they're scared that we might have a price change or uh, something <laughs> of the likes. Just because they're 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 so appreciative of the service they're given. So um, it really does open the playing field and, and mean that you can have a good relationship. And contracts are just a just a tick box in the middle. 
I love that approach because you're giving options to people. You're not saying, hey, you've got to sign up for 12, three, 12 months, three years, whatever it might be. You're saying, try us, see if you like us. And again, it's this uh, sort of, I'm going to call it laid back approach that you have towards it. You you live and die by the service. Uh, if we're Absolutely. good, carry on using us. If, you, if we're no good, there's plenty of other players out on the market there. But I really find that refreshing. Something else uh, I think that really stands out as well is um, when people talk to outsourcing partners, one of the biggest challenges is uh, to do with the geography, uh, to do with Absolutely. the cultural differences. So talk to me how you've overcome that sort of um, uh, reluctance in some areas of the managed service provider in- industry to uh, outsource services. So, when when the ideas were in, in being put into plan and you know somewhat being executed uh, early on, the biggest thing was always going to be um, the the locations of our offices and um, being that almost premium esque uh, type delivery of support. Um, Essentially, the way we've managed to do that is we've taken on investments that other MSPs would typically shy away from. So uh, the New Zealand office, the New Zealand office, we opened up without any real business need for it at the time. But by absorbing that that investment and, and that um, decision to open it, it meant after six months, it was now ready for MSPs to use and benefit and, and not have to uh, take on that significant cost to, to get it up and running. So... Uh, I don't think actually we're that different from MSPs. We've got similar values. We've got similar um, ways of doing things. And, and that's why it's a good fit. All we've done is we've kind of got the foundations and the economies of scale. Um, all we do is, you know, that help desk piece or that that sock piece and focus on just doing that really well and not having to do uh, significant amounts of VCIO or account management or um, sales or anything like that means that we can just put 100% of time and energy back into that one thing, tech. Do that really well, and then you can focus on doing the other pieces around it really well. Um, it's the age old, right? Is is take that, take something and make it better. Um, mm. But by making it better, usually that's by focusing in on something or finding some sort of niche. And our niche sounds really simple, but it's just focus on the tech. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. Something else that I think that you've done uh, particularly well, and this is an iteration as well, uh, outsourcing companies, one of the um, reluctant pieces that I've seen for, for managed service providers is they say, well, it'll become faceless. So if my clients phone a help desk, they're going to get through to one of 400 people in your uh, service center, and they're not going to like that. And I think that's a uh, that's a valid uh, sort of argument there. But you've overcome that with something that you call your pods, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. So for those that don't know, our our offices are split into uh, small teams that we call pods. It's a group of five or six individuals um, and they form a pod. Those pods are aligned to MSPs. Um, so as an MSP, if you spanned full 24-7 coverage, the maximum number of people your customers could talk to is... 12, a pod in the UK and a pod in New Zealand. Um, that means that we can give you the faces, the names, you know, a bit of a description on those guys so you can incorporate them in your team. Some MSPs even go as far as putting them on their website and, and those types of things. And whilst that, to many people, that seems like such an easy fix, the, I think the reason no one does it is it is very difficult to do. Mm. As, a, as a business to architect and, and build a new pod and um, and to just spin them up is actually quite a difficult task. You have to always have 
one ready and spare, if you like. Um, and so it goes back to what I was saying at the start, but from a business decision standpoint, it's not the way most people go because you're always having to factor in extra resource that you, you don't actually need. Um, but from a tech standpoint, that allows us to be sort of at the very top of the tech delivery um, and also be ready for the next partner that wants to come on board. Um, so it benefits in the long run equally. Uh, and that's that's everything uptime is built on is is I'm not interested in the next month. I'm looking at this long term with you. How can we help you for the next three months, year, two years? And let's let's head to that goal together because we we yes, we're facilitating some of the tech, but we want synergy between you you and us so that we can head towards the same goal, um, almost like a, a squad, if you like. Yeah, makes sense. And I want to touch on something there that you said, uh, you know, almost like a squad. One of the, and again, I'm going to be upfront here, Jason, this is not bashing the rest of the MSP industry. This is not bashing vendors. There's a lot of great vendors out there doing things. But but one of the uh, challenges that I'm uh, seeing in the industry is there is a perception with MSPs that at the start of a sales cycle, uh, they get a ton of enthusiasm from their vendors. Hey, come and join us. We're going to be great. We're going to do great things together. And you've already mentioned it. You know, uh, they sign up. And then after a few months, it's like you're almost forgotten about. It feels that way. And then when it comes to the end of the contract, you know, you suddenly get all the love again. And I think a lot of MSPs are becoming wise to that. And they're saying, hey, we want you to be a partner for the long term. So I mentioned that uptime, I've uh, observed that you've got a very laid back approach, but you also realize that when you bring clients on board, it's not a one and done. Outsourcing is not something you can just say, hey, that's a tool we've got in place. It's sorted. Tell me more about how you sort of integrate and become an extended part of your MSP clients teams absolutely so obviously being tech automation is great um, but onboarding to begin with is six calls usually four weeks um, at the moment free of charge to partners and that is just a deep dive learn each other learn the processes um, we'll take on your systems we don't make you take our systems if you don't want to um, there's an array of different uh, ways in which we can work that. Um, but that onboarding is a get to know each other, get to know the team. We pull in um, the pod team leader, we pull in service delivery manager. Um, everyone in the business that you need to know about comes into that call um, or multiple calls in that in that process. But that, you know, there's lots of vendors out there that do very good onboarding. I'll, I'll be very truthful. There's some phenomenal onboardings I've seen. But then that stops. When, when you go live, you get assigned an account manager that is there when you want them sometimes. I mean, that's debatable depending on what, what company it is. Um, they're there when you want them, but they do nothing proactively. So where we've really put the focus on is what happens once you've gone live? How do we stay in a good place together? And the amount of MSPs I've spoken to that, you know, they haven't done QBRs for a long time or, or simple things that we all know are givens, but they just don't happen. And, and we've tried to focus on those aspects. So, the first thing that we do, really nice and simple, is you get a weekly call with your pod team leader, a weekly opportunity to chat. He can feed stuff back to you. You can feed stuff back to him. And you are speaking direct to the horse's mouth. You're not going via someone and, and all those different things. Number one, that builds the relationship. And number two, that synergy is, is one and the same. As you said, it's not one and done. This is about creating a bond between you and the pod so that they, they work well on behalf of you because that's ultimately what they're doing and 
when when you've got that weekly call going, then the other bits start to fit around it, which is the account manager now, because you're having a weekly call with the pod team leader, the account manager only has to focus on being an escalation point or doing the proactive items. So now their job's a little bit easier because a little bit of that workload's been passed down. Um, and then once you get past that, something we do is we offer out our service delivery manager. Uh, our service delivery manager is an escalation point for everyone um, and is a someone that you can actively talk to. You can just pick up the phone. Um, so by, by just shifting a couple of items around and putting in processes to have these ongoing items, suddenly you actually, the time you would have spent fixing something, you put that into proactive elements. You don't have to fix something because you're, you're catching it before it comes up. So just trying to be smart with our time to mean that we can catch things before they become problems um, and also fix things and learn from things before they, they escalate. And it all sounds a bit smoke and mirrors is what I often get told. Um, if you don't believe me, look at the community forums. We've got so many partners that still actively talk about us a lot because yeah. we're actively talking to them which is is phenomenal and, and amazing to see yeah and i want to touch upon that uh, that specific piece about the community so i've mentioned the tech tribe the you know the community that i call home the community yep. you're a part of the tech tribe you've been a part of the tech tribe for months and months now and um people know you people trust you i don't think i've ever heard you once jason mention uptime solutions when you're having conversations with people in there, which seems absolutely counterproductive. So clearly you're in the tech tribe because, you know, uh, people you want people to buy uptime solutions, but you don't hit them over the head with a hammer about that and say, hey, buy from us. Why is it so important for you to be in a community like the tech tribe and to be getting in amongst MSPs? That's a very interesting question. I, I First of all, I love this industry. Um, uptime, no uptime. I, I love the, I don't know of any other industry in the world where you can openly talk with competitors. Um, not obviously not myself, but MSP to MSP mm-hmm. and have good productive conversation, come around the same table, go out for beers after an event, whatever it is, it may be. The industry is phenomenal. The main reason I'm part of them. Um, one is I, I do want to, you know, I do want to create a little bit of a name for myself and um, I do want to share the knowledge that I've I've managed to, to gain over all of these years. Um, but actually, some people come up with phenomenal ideas that I like. The, there's a couple and I won't say which ones, but I've seen a couple of ideas that have actually been brought internal. Um, I almost want to keep my finger on the pulse, uh, for want of a better phrase. Um, there's so many intelligent, smart and, and wonderful people in all of these communities, especially the tech tribe. Um, that it's, it's a breeding ground for ideas and, and innovation. Um, to go back to just slightly to what you were saying at the start, um, I got asked the other day, um, I told an MSP of the name of a, a competitor. And I said to them, uh, it might be worth you calling this company as well. You know, they're the other option for you. And both us and them can do the same thing. And I always get asked, why do you do that? That's that's silly. That That's not in the handbook of sales. Um, I am so utterly confident in what we do and such a believer that I know our paths will cross at some point. And my door is always going to be open. It will always be open. And, and one day we will work together. Um, there just needs to be the right time. And so whether that is next week, whether that is in two years' time, 
we will get the opportunity to to be partners um, and we'll be get the opportunity to work together. But until you're ready, it's best that you don't you don't pull the trigger because um, outsourcing is a big decision and and doing it right and binding to our ideas and your ideas and working together that sets us up for a successful relationship. So um, that's the reason I'm transparent, hopefully just to answer that sub bit of your question as well. Makes a lot of sense. Jason, I know you and Brad are students of the game. You are students of the managed service industry. But for for anybody uh, listening to this, especially other vendors listening to this, I'm going to give you a heads up. Go and look at what Time Solutions are doing. They are iterating. They are doing it really well. And they are building a customer-centric approach to being a vendor. So, Jason, thanks for your time today. I really appreciate you discussing this with me. Thank you very much, sir. Welcome to the podcast, Tim Swainson. How are you doing? I'm doing good, thanks. Uh, for anybody who's unfamiliar with your business, Kemp, and what you do, perhaps give us a little potted history. Yeah, certainly. Um, Kemp as a business has been around since the early 2000s, providing load balancing technology for companies. Uh, bring that up to where we are today. We're, we're providing a simplified way to ensure application experience is maintained, no matter where those applications sit or where the users have to connect from. Got it. And and this year, of course, in the pandemic and working from home and everything else that's gone on, you've certainly found businesses, your business has come to the forefront, hasn't it? Because everybody is doing everything online. It's certainly becoming the, the shifter cloud that we've encouraged where, where load balancing has its place, definitely. Yeah. So we're talking about customer-centric vendors. And I wanted to interview you, Tim, because out of all the vendors that I've seen this year, uh, yourself and a couple of others have really sort of zoomed in uh, on what it means to be a customer-centric vendor. And what I mean by that is mm. you have listened to what MSPs have said, you've adjusted, uh, you've pivoted in some cases, and you've made it easy for people to do business with you. So I want to start off specifically talking about something that uh, is super important to everyone, and that's licensing. Yeah. So tell me more, because Kemp have radically overhauled their licensing in the sort of past 12 months or so to make it very managed service provider friendly. Give us an overview of what prompted that and what your licensing looks like now yeah the key prompt for that was to fit within the flexibility that people were expecting from the cloud environments that they were moving into the the ability to switch on and switch off grow and expand and be flexible and take a license with them wherever it is that they need to go so that was the the, the requirement that was met when our spla and metered licenses were first introduced but this year they've had to take a complete overhaul again to be able to meet what is the, the extra demand and also the change in the, the size of requirements and the type of requirements and then key some of the security requirements that people need to consider. Yeah, so you, you talked about SPLA, Service, private, service Provider License Agreement, which That's people right, yeah. are usually familiar with. Uh, you've talked about metered licensing, which I guess is where you are offering um, uh, you know, a certain amount of bandwidth or something along those lines. Yeah, you can purchase a, a pot of throughput is the best way that I tend yeah. to describe it. You take your pot, you slice that across the deployments that you require until your pot runs dry and you charge for that pot no matter where you've had to deploy it. Got it. And you've got pooled licensing as well as something you've recently um, added. 
So as part of the overhaul, we've added pooled licensing as well. Similar approach. That's where a company can take a pot of uh, throughput themselves and they can then divide that in known chunks to where it is that they're going to put it. Now, we do talk some big throughput capabilities there for companies that are looking at number of deployments across lots of different locations. But again, back to that single easy to manage license management and cost. And what was the trigger for changing uh, the licensing model? How do you sort of keep your finger on the pulse of what people are actually wanting and needing? Yeah, it was uh, it was a decision that had to come from the size of licenses that we had originally. Now, our entry level across most of our licenses, the smallest entry level is 500 meg. Now, that's per second application throughput. Now, when we looked at the deployments that were going into cloud and host environments, that was just too big. Mm. So we'd already made the decision that 200 was available, but even still with conversations with the companies that we work with and the partner engagement that we have, that was still too big. So we've had to now release two levels lower. We now start at 50 meg, 50 meg of throughput per second application that companies can take, deploy into their environments and provide the load balancing that they require. The other trick that we took with that, Richard, was we took away the complication of licenses as well. Because mm. we used to have one license with and one license without geographical load balancing and web application firewalling. Now we've gone, right, let's bundle all that in. Let's give you more license flexibility and more features. Please take what you need and use it. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. So you're simplifying this based on the feedback that MSPs were giving you. Exactly, yeah. 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 The other thing that I want to touch upon is um, the training that you're offering really seems to have ramped up this year. Now, one of the biggest concerns that I hear from MSPs is there is a ton of opportunity available to them, but they haven't got the time to actually dig into all of that so i know kemp you focus very hard this year on uh, uh, sort of enabling people to have the skills they need to go out there yeah. and our our good friend the man with the coolest name in the channel yes yeah. bloodsaw um he's been doing one-on-one training with uh, msps as well so talk to me about mm-hmm. how that's grown this year and how you've sort of pivoted to 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 make the training that msps need available yeah, certification is always an important requirement, especially for a technology as, as detailed uh, as, as load balancing. So our, our courses have always been quite compact. They would take a full day and we'd go through four different modules that, uh, that companies would be able to sit and engineers then take an exam at the end to pass. We've turned that now into remote sessions, two-hour bite-sized chunks and Sid is doing those as sort of one-on-one or group sessions as we would do with training to make sure that access to the certification is still available, even though people can't get a full day in a classroom. And also to bear in mind that a full day on a remote session is just perhaps a bit too much. So we've chopped those down into small bite size, free to attend, come and see how, how it is you set up a load balancer, how you would build some of the key templates and how you manage those And that's had some great results. We've had over 100 attendees in the last couple of months because it's made it more accessible. 
Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, we've got a separate video that where we did a uh, a deep dive into the product itself. And the thing is, Sid showed me it's actually quite a simple product to set up mm-hmm. and use. But the perception of uh, load balancing as a technology yeah. is actually like, oh, you know, it's quite difficult. So I love the way you've broken down that training. And I speak to so many MSPs. As I said, they they say we just haven't got the time to do this stuff. But it's easy with a two-hour chunk, isn't it, to just mm. say to somebody and one of your engineers, hey, take a couple of hours off the help desk or whatever and jump into that training and then come back. It's not a whole day given up to it. So I love the way you've pivoted there. Yeah. yeah. It's been good to see the results that we've, we've had from it. More, more companies seeing how our product works and putting it into use. So for you, um, as a, I guess, as a salesman, as an account manager, whichever hat we want to put on you, mm-hmm. previously, Tim, you would be getting out on the road and you would be going to visit people yeah. and you would be going to events and we would say hello and um, in person. All of that has gone now. What, yeah. How has the world changed for you and how are you maintaining that contact with your MSP clients? Yeah, it has changed dramatically, hasn't it? Because this becomes the... The work location. Yeah, working from <laughs> home. Apart from moving to here or to here, <laughs> there's not too much that goes on. Um, yeah, I probably do miss some of those uh, several hours uh, in the car. Yeah. I've got the opportunity to think things through and perhaps uh, take the time to, to think over the, the next activities that are going on. So it has changed dramatically, but the access to the virtualized approach, the virtual events, conversations like this face-to-face they seem to be able to happen so much quicker Mm. rather than trying to arrange well well, when are you next free let's have a quick look through the diary okay we could probably do a month from now whereas it's actually well I've got a slot tomorrow afternoon are you free for a call over zoom or Teams? so the actual response to things and keeping up with the the partners the, the bit that I have really enjoyed is engaging with our partners is when we have a call with them you get four or six faces appear on the screen yeah. rather than it just being a meeting with a director where you've, you've traveled to meet at a time that is convenient. Everybody has said, yeah, I can make it. I can dial in from this location. So the meetings have become a lot more varied uh, and, and, and covering a much wider array, which is, which has been a great thing to see. Yeah, great. And and, and again, uh, congratulations because Kemp recently won a product of the year as well. Mm-hmm. And some people raised eyebrows. They didn't. They were like a load balancing product, product of the year. But mm-hmm. I think what we've highlighted here is you are very, very customer uh, focused, very, very customer centric. Just as we close off then, Tim, any advice or anything that you're seeing that MSPs should be doing with their clients, end users in this sort of new normal that we've got? How can they make themselves more customer centric? Yeah, it's, bit, it's keeping in touch. Uh, I, I think it's it's quite a challenge as as normal to, to be able to keep keep a finger on the pulse of what your customers are expecting. But if you're not talking to them, they're not going to let you know. Uh, and really making sure that you're hearing what they're saying to you as well. I think I've uh, perhaps fell for it myself where, where a video conversation goes on and you perhaps thought, I'm not going to appear on camera today. I'm not going to be the, the personal contact because things are a mess or I'm, I'm not quite <laughs> in camera ready. But always, always aim to be sort of in front of the customer in a meeting so they can see your reaction and you can also see theirs um and it's it's keeping that level of contact open finding that way that's that's suitable for you and your customer be it by video be it by regular updates one of the things we're doing a lot at the moment is is regular 
regular, regular, regular training videos and webinars just to keep up with the, the bite-sized chunks. Take a look at this when you've got five minutes. Please see what we have for this to talk about and keeping that information rolling so that we're relevant all of the time when, when our partners are looking for, for answers. Wonderful. Tim, thanks for your time today. I know you are very, very accessible uh, to partners, so we'll make sure to include in the show notes all of your contact details. But if anybody wants to reach out to you, what's the best way to do so? Best way is to get hold of me on uh, on, on email, as always. tswainson at kemp.ax is usually the quickest and easiest response. Or reach out to me for a Teams conversation. And please, uh, please feel free to reach out on the mobile number, which I'm happy uh, for you to share in the contact details. Fantastic. Tim, really appreciate your time. Cheers. See you again. Hey folks, Richard here. Thanks for listening today. I know you've got a ton of options for who you listen to nowadays, so I really appreciate your support. Do you have any feedback on this episode? Ideas for future guests? Tweet me at Tublog using the hashtag TubTalk. I respond to every tweet and really appreciate your feedback. 